Hello, and welcome to Misinformation, a trivia podcast for ladies and gents who love cool trivia and sticking it to annoying teams at Pub Quiz. We're your hosts. I'm Lauren. And I'm Julia. Hey, Jewel. Hi, Lauren. Hey, so, um, you know, we, uh, you and I, we've been doing this podcast for a while. Yeah, we have. Like three years now, barely. Yeah, and you know what? We've been doing really good, because you know why? And I thought about this the other day. We're both, like naturally organized people. It's true. So it was never a uh, a hardship for either one of us to be like, okay, we're, you know, we'll record every two weeks. We're going to do this. We're going to release every Tuesday. Like that was, that came naturally, I think, to both of us. And I think that's probably, I would say, 85% of our success is that we're just, if nothing else, we are consistent. (laughs) It's not a group project that one person is resentfully carrying the burden uh, yeah, and you and I have both been that exact person many times. Yeah. So I know that feeling. Anyway, <laughs> sorry, I just like flashback. Flashback to grad school. Flash, oh, flashback to grad school. <laughs> so um, I realized when I was looking for an episode to do this week, uh, I, and I think you too, have not done a war in a minute. I mean, yeah, I guess after Dictator December, we took a... <laughs> yeah, we took a we took long a break. <laughs> from, uh, from real mass destruction, but... Yeah, conflicts. Um, but you know what? I've, I, took, I took the mantle upon myself, and I decided, you know what? I'm going to do like a little known war. Great. So today, I'm going to teach you all about the Boer War. Um, do you know, first of all, do you know anything about the Boer War, Julia? Uh, I know that Britain was involved. Yep. As, and, and you know what? That would have been a good guess at the very least. And that um, South Africa is South Africa is part of it. Yes. You are correct on both counts. So that is pretty much that, the extent. So, <laughs> Well, you know what? That was more than I knew when I started researching this topic. So congratulations. Um, I did know about Britain, but I did not know about South Africa. And I will not be referring to it as that from for the rest of the, I promise. So um, to begin with, the conflict is commonly referred to as the Second Boer War. Since the First Boer War, which was December 1880 to March 1881, it only lasted a couple of months, um, was smaller. It was just, it wasn't okay. really a war. It was kind of a battle. The word Boer, B-O-E-R, means farmer. Um, and it's the common term for Afrikaans-speaking white South Africans descended from Dutch East India Company's original settlers at the Cape of Good Hope. So these are white uh, South Africans who speak Afrikaans, okay. which is um, like a sort of a weird hybrid between like Dutch and German and African. It's kind of a cool language. Um, in South Africa, it is officially called the South African War. And they also sometimes call it the Second Anglo-Boer War. And in fact, according to a 2011 BBC report, uh, most scholars prefer to call the War of 1899 to 1902 the South African War, thereby acknowledging that all South Africans, white and black, were affected by the war and many were participants. Hmm, all right. Yep. So, why, why, why did they go to war? So here's the, war, the they're reason. They're so far away. Oh, they're so far away. So... It, as, as with many wars, there's a long history to it. So the origins were complex, and they stemmed from more than a century of conflict between the Boers and Britain. So let's start with a little background. So okay. the first Europeans 
settlement in South Africa was founded at the Cape of Good Hope in 1652 uh, and thereafter administered as part of the Dutch Cape Colony. Uh, the Cape was governed by the Dutch East India Company until its bankruptcy in the late 1700s, and thereafter it was directly by the Netherlands. So the Netherlands took over when the Dutch East India Company mm. collapsed. Mm. Um, the British occupied the Cape three times during the Napoleonic Wars as a result of political turmoil in the Netherlands, and the occupation became permanent after British forces defeated the Dutch at the Battle of Blauberg in 1806. So at the time, the colony was home to about 26,000 colonists settled under Dutch rule, and a relative majority still represented old Dutch families brought to the Cape during the late 17th and early 18th centuries. Uh, however, close to one-fourth of this demographic was of German origin and one-sixth of French Huguenot descent. Mm. So you got, like, a little bit of a mix. All right. It's mostly just, like, descenders, like, p- descendants of Dutch people from way back when, but also a little bit of German, a little bit of French. Okay. So divisions amongst these people were likelier to occur along socioeconomic rather than ethnic lines— However, um, and broadly speaking, the colonists included a number of distinct subgroups, including the Boers. Okay. So the Boers were like the the farmers for all intents and purposes. Um, They were itinerant farmers who lived on the colony's frontier seeking better pastures for their livestock. And many Boers were dissatisfied with aspects of British administration, in particular with Britain's abolition of slavery on December 1st, 1834. So they didn't like the abolition of slavery because they would have been unable to collect their compensation for their slaves, uh, whom they also required the aid from to cater to their farms properly. So they needed the help, and they also got some money from the government at the time to help care for their slaves. And when they abolished slavery, they were no longer getting that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So this is, um, so I'm going to just really, like, from the beginning say, like, this, this is... There's no, like, good guy uh-huh. <laughs> in this conflict. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. So that's that was an aspect of their tensions is that Britain abolished slavery and the Boers were like, ah, oh, come on. Um, so they elected to migrate away from British rule in what became known as the Great Trek. So about 15,000 Boers departed the Cape Colony and followed the eastern coast towards Natal. So they were like, we're getting out of here. We're going to greener pastures for okay. all intents and purposes. Then, after Britain annexed Natal in 1843, they journeyed farther northwards into South Africa's vast eastern interior. So there they established two independent Boer republics. The South African Republic in 1852, um, which is also known as the Transvaal Republic. And from here on out, okay. just, to, just to make things clearer, mm-hmm. we'll call them the Transvaal or the Transvaal Republic for okay. this purpose. Um, and then they also established the Orange Free State from 1854. The Orange Free State? The Orange Free State. So not Orange Free, <laughs> but Orange Free Lemons only. State. Lemons only here. No oranges here. So help me God, if you bring an orange over the border, we will shoot you on sight. Uh, <laughs> so Britain recognized the two Boer republics in 1852 and 1854, but attempted British annexation of the Transvaal in 1877, led to the First Boer War in 1880. Okay. So Britain was like, sure, you can be okay. You're fine there. And then they were like, actually, we're going to take over the Transvaal. And then they kind of like lost that. Mm, Okay. Uh, They suffered a lot of defeats, particularly at what was known as the Battle of Majuba Hill. Uh, And the independence of the two republics were restored subject to certain conditions. Um, But relations, however, as you can imagine, remained uneasy. So, things aren't awesome, but the Boers have their states and the English are leaving them alone, for the most part, until 
Less than a decade later, in 1866, diamonds were discovered at Kimberley. Ah. Yeah, prompting a diamond rush and massive influx of foreigners at the borders of the Orange Free State. And then in 1886, gold was discovered in the Vidvatersund area of the Transvaal. So gold made the Transvaal the richest nation in South Africa. However, the country had neither the manpower nor the industrial base to develop the resource on its own. So... As a result, the Transvaal reluctantly acquiesced to the immigration of what were known as Oitlanders, or foreigners, mm-hmm. which were mainly English-speaking men from Britain who came to the Boer region in search of fortune and employment. So kind of like Gold Rush, the Gold yeah, Rush. Yeah, for real. Yeah. So they got, like, all these English guys are like, well, if they found gold and diamonds down there, I'm heading down to make my fortune. So this ultimately resulted in the number of uh, Oitlanders in the Transvaal potentially exceeding the number of Boers and precipitated confrontations between the earlier arrived Boer settlers and the new non-Boer arrivals. So they kind of overwhelmed them by numbers, and the Boers were like, this is no good. So uh, Britain's expansionist ideas, because Britain was like totally about like the sun's never setting oh, on the Oh, yeah, British- 100 peak. Yeah. Um, this was notably propagated by Cecil Rhodes. I'll talk about him in a second. Um, uh, disputes over Oitlander political and economic rights resulted in the failed Jameson Raid of 1895. So, Dr. Leander Starr Jameson, he was, uh, he led the raid. He intended to encourage an uprising of the Oitlanders in Johannesburg. So he was an, an Oitlander. Um, he was like, we're going to get our rights. And so he was like, come on, guys. However, the Oitlanders did not take up arms and support, and Transvaal government forces surrounded them and captured his men before they could reach Johannesburg. Okay. Um, Cecil Rhodes, by the by, uh, was a British businessman, mining magnate, and politician in Southern Africa who served as Prime Minister of the Cape Colony from 1890 to 1896. He was an ardent believer in British imperialism and white supremacy. Mm -hmm. Uh, Rhodes and his British South Africa company founded the Southern African Territory of Rhodesia, named after him, uh, which which is now Zimbabwe and Zambia, uh, to which the company named after him in 1895. So this guy... This guy. This guy. That's all I got to say. Anyway. So... Tensions are escalating. Political maneuverings and negotiations attempted to reach compromise on the issues of the rights of the Oitlanders within the Transvaal, control of the gold mining industry, and Britain's desire to incorporate the Transvaal and the Orange Free State into a federation under British control. Because now they have all this money, and so Britain is like, okay, you had your fun. You're coming under us because we're going to take yeah. over. Um, and given the British origins of the majority of the Oitlanders and the ongoing influx of new Oitlanders into Johannesburg, uh, the Boers recognized that granting full voting rights to the Oitlanders would eventually result in the loss of ethnic Boer control in the Transvaal. So, then, June 1899 negotiations in Blomfontein failed, and in September 1899, British colonial secretary Joseph Chamberlain demanded full voting rights and representation for the Oitlanders residing in the Transvaal. Paul Kruger, who is the president of the Transvaal Republic, issued an ultimatum in October 1899, giving the British government 48 hours to withdraw all their troops from the borders of both the Transvaal and the Orange Free State. Failing which, the Transvaal, allied to the Orange Free State, would declare war on the British government. Oh. Yeah. So, as you can imagine, the British government rejected the Transvaal's ultimatum, resulting in the Transvaal and Orange Free State declaring war, ultimately. So... The Jameson raid alienated many Cape Afrikaners from Britain and united the Transvaal Boers behind President Kruger and his government. Okay. It also had the effect of drawing the Transvaal and the Orange Free State, um, led by President Martinus Theonis Stain, 
together in opposition to perceived British imperialism. Um, and so in 1897, they created a military pact between the two republics, and they're like, we're going to work together to overthrow the British. Uh, by September 1900, the British were nominally in control of both of these republics, with the exception of the northern part of Transvaal. However, they soon discovered that they only controlled the territory their troops physically occupied. Ah, <laughs> so okay. only the ground that they're standing on. Um, <laughs> despite the loss of their two capital cities and half of their army, the Boer commanders adopted guerrilla warfare tactics, primarily conducting raids against railways, resource, and supply targets, all aimed at disrupting the operational capacity of the British army. Um, they avoided pitched battles, and casualties were light. The Boer commandos were especially effective during the initial guerrilla phase of the war because Roberts had assumed that the war would end with the capture of the Boer capitals and the dispersal of the main Boer armies. Roberts was the general who was the mm -hmm. British general. So he thought he'd just have to take their cities and then the rest would fall. He did not, nah. like, think correctly. <laughs> um so he thought they were good, so many of the British troops were therefore redeployed out of the area and had been replaced by lower-quality contingents of imperial yeomanry and locally raised irregular corps. So he was like, just bring in the second string, we're going to just finish this up really quick. However, the very nature of the Boer guerrilla war and the Boer raids on British camps were sporadic, poorly planned, and had little overall long-term objective, with the exception to simply harass the British. Did the... Did the um the Boers have, like, weapons, or were they, like, just running around with pitchforks? Or <laughs> So they did have weapons because um, being in the bush um, and, being, and living in, in Africa for a very long mm -hmm. time, these people um, were good marksmen because they, okay. they would hunt yeah, really frequently. Mm -hmm. um, the other problem was they, they weren't very organized. Like, they were like, we're going to fight the British, but it's not like they had you know, established was in armies and generals. Yeah. I mean, there was like a small faction of, of guys who were considered like the army or the police, you know, like they were kind mm -hmm. of self um, regulating, but in terms of fighting the British, they weren't very organized because these weren't um, soldiers, you know, these were just farmers <laughs> who wanted their rights, you know? So it's like the equivalent of like a bunch of farmers at the pub. Yeah. Having a few pints and then being like, we should, we should go and fight the British. Yeah. We, we should fight the biggest country in the world right now. Um, and this is sad. So the British also implemented what they called a scorched earth policy under which they targeted everything within the controlled areas that could give sustenance to the Boer guerrillas with a view to make it harder for the Boers to survive. So as British troops swept the countryside, they systematically destroyed crops, burned homesteads and farms and interred Boer and African men, women, and children, and workers in concentration camps. Oh, my. So we'll talk a little bit about concentration camps in a minute, but let's talk about um, the Native African people. Mm -hmm. So the Boers and the British both feared the consequences of arming Africans. So the memories of the Zulu and other tribal conflicts were still fresh. It was recent, and they had recognized that whoever won would have to deal with the consequences of a mass militarization of the tribes. So there was therefore an unwritten agreement that this war would be a white man's war. Okay. Hmm. Okay. So at, at the outset, British officials instructed all white magistrates in the Natal colony to appeal to uh, Zulu Amakosi, who are chiefs, mm -hmm. um, to remain neutral. And President Kruger sent emissaries asking them to stay out of it. Um, however, in some cases, there were old scores to be settled, and some Africans, such as the Swazis, were eager to enter the war with a specific aim of reclaiming land won by the Boers. 
So as the war went on, there was a greater involvement of Africans, and in particular, large numbers became embroiled in the conflict on the British side, either voluntarily or involuntarily. And by the end of the war, uh, many black Africans had been armed and had shown conspicuous gallantry in roles such as scouts, messengers, watchmen in blockhouses, and auxiliaries. About 10,000 black men were attached to Boer units where they performed camp duties uh, and a handful unofficially fought in combat. And the British Army employed over 14,000 Africans as wagon drivers. Even more had combatant roles as spies, guides, and eventually as soldiers. And by 1902, there were about 30,000 armed Africans in the British Army. So the policy on both sides um, to minimize the role of non-whites, but the need for manpower continuously stretched those resolves. So at the Battle of Spy and Cop and Ladysmith, a little man that you may have heard of named Mahatma Gandhi. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, that guy. Yeah, Mm -hmm. with 300 free Indians and 800 indentured Indian laborers started the ambulance corps serving the British side. So as the war raged across African farms and their homes were destroyed, many became refugees, and they, like the Boers, moved to the towns where the British hastily created internment camps. Subsequently, the scorched earth policy was ruthlessly applied to both Boers and Africans, and although most black Africans were not considered by the British to be hostile, many tens of thousands were also forcibly removed from Boer areas and also placed in concentration camps. So, of course, as you can imagine, Africans were held separately from Boer internees, and eventually there were a total of 64 tented camps for Africans. Oh my gosh. Um, conditions were as bad in the camps for the Boers, but even though after the Fawcett Commission report, conditions improved in the Boer camps, improvements were much slower in coming to the black camps, and oh. 20,000 people died there. Oh my gosh. So, This is the first time that the term concentration camp was used to describe camps operated by the British in South Africa during this conflict. Wow. And so this term grew in prominence during this period. So this was like one of the first times they used the term concentration camps. Wow. So they had originally been set up, as mentioned before, as refugee camps to provide refuge for civilian families who had been forced to abandon their homes for whatever reason. However, when British Army officer Herbert Kitchener took over in late 1900, he introduced new tactics in an attempt to break the guerrilla campaign, and the influx of civilians grew dramatically as a result. So disease and starvation killed thousands, and Kitchener initiated plans to flush out guerrillas in a series of systematic drives, organized like Sporting Shoot, with success defined in a weekly bag of killed, captured, and wounded, and to sweep the country bare of everything that can give sustenance to the guerrillas, including women and children. Yeah. Um, it was the clearance of civilians uprooting a whole nation that would come to dominate the last phase of the war. So the last phase of the war was absolute, just c- complete and utter, like, mindless destruction oh my of, of the, the land and the people. So um, as Boer farms were destroyed by the British under the scorched earth policy, um, many tens of thousands of women and children were forcibly moved into the concentration camps. And this... Uh, so this was not the first appearance of internment camps. Mm-hmm. The Spanish had used internment in Cuba in the Ten Years' War. Um, but the Boer War concentration camp system was the first time that a whole nation had been systematically targeted and the first in which whole regions had been depopulated. So eventually there were a total of 45 tented camps built for Boer internees, and as I mentioned before, 65 for the Africans. Of the 28,000 Boer men captured as prisoners of war, 25,630 were sent overseas and either freed or enslaved within civil societies. So they were just shipped out. They just, like, this sent them away. This is crazy. Isn't it crazy? I did not know any of this. Why did I think this was, like, a joke war? <laughs> I know. Well, 
Me too. And I was like, this is going to be so light. And then I got halfway through and I was like, oh, oh boy. Yikes. Oh, boy. So, so because all of the prisoners of war were sent away, because they didn't want to deal with them like escaping or, mm-hmm. or helping other people, the majority of the Boers who remained in the camps were women and children. Okay. So over 27,000 women and children died in these concentration camps. Oh, my God. Um. The camps were poorly administered from the outset and became increasingly overcrowded when Kitchener's troops implemented the internment strategy on a vast scale. And conditions were terrible for the health of the internees, mainly due to neglect, poor hygiene, and bad sanitation. Uh, The supply of all items were unreliable, partially because of the constant disruption of communication lines by the Boers, and the food rations were meager, and there was a two-tier allocation policy whereby families of men who were still fighting were routinely given smaller rations than others. So their families were punished for not, for their, you know, the men in their family not surrendering or, you know. So the inadequate shelter, poor diet, bad hygiene, and overcrowding led to malnutrition and endemic contagious diseases such as measles, typhoid, and dysentery, to which the children were particularly vulnerable. So coupled with the shortage of modern medical facilities, many of the internees died. Um, Also... This woman named Emily Hobhouse. She was a British welfare campaigner, feminist, and pacifist. She was instrumental in bringing relief to the concentration camps, as well as raising public awareness in Europe of the atrocities. So she, and we'll talk about this in a second, but she was basically like the person who was like raising the alarm back in England. Like, this is not just anything. Like, people are, like, children and women are dying because of us kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So the British offered terms of peace on various occasions, notably in March 1901, but were rejected uh, by what were known as the bitter enders. So bitter enders, and the, it's something else in Afrikaans, I'll get to it. It's like bitterenda. Um, they pledged to fight until the bitter end and rejected the demand for compromise made by the, and what they called them, the hands-uppers. This is so like a dystopian wordplay right, type thing, you know? So their reasons included hatred of the British, <laughs> obviously, <laughs> Uh, loyalty to their dead comrades, solidarity with fellow commandos, an intense desire for independence, religious arguments, and fear of captivity or punishment. On the other hand, their women and children were dying every day, and independence seemed impossible. So it, it seemed like towards the end, the last Boers who were fighting were just kind of like, just really sticking into it. Um, the last of the Boers surrendered in May 1902, and the war ended with the Treaty of Vereeninchen, signed on May 31st, 1902. Uh, The British had won and offered generous terms to regain the support of the Boers, and the Boers were given uh, three million pounds for reconstruction and were promised eventual limited self-government, which was granted in 1906 and 1907. So the treaty ended the existence of the Transvaal and the Orange Free State as independent Boer republics and placed them within the British Empire, and the Union of South Africa was established as a dominion of the British Empire in 1910. So it is estimated that the total cost of the war to the British government was 211,156,000 pounds. Oh my gosh. E- equivalent to 202 billion. With a B. With a B in 2014. Jeez. So this was an astronaut, like such an expensive war, not just in money, but like people. So, um, and then of course, because the, it's the way this is history, like there are echoes into the future. Um, one of the most important events in the decade after the end of the war was the creation of the Union of South Africa, which was later known as the Republic of South Africa. It proved a key ally to Britain as a dominion of the British Empire during the World Wars. 
And at the start of the First World War, a crisis ensued when the South African government, led by Louis Botha and other former Boer fighters, declared support for Britain and agreed to send troops to take over the German colony of German Southwest Africa, which was now Namibia. Okay. So many Boers were opposed to fighting for Britain, especially against Germany, which had been sympathetic to their struggle. And a number of, uh, they, they were called Bittereinders, and their, and their allies took part in a revolt known as the Merritt's Rebellion. This was quickly suppressed, and in 1916, the, le- uh, the leading Boer rebels in the Merritt's Rebellion got off lightly with terms of imprisonment of six and seven years and heavy fines. Two years later, they were released from prison as Louis Botha recognized the value of reconciliation. Thereafter, the Bitter Einders concentrated on political organization within the constitutional system and built up what later became the National Party, which took power in 1948 and dominated the politics of South Africa from the 1940s until the early 1990s, Hmm. creating the apartheid system. Ah, yes. So these Boers who survived and like maintained their political beliefs and and their beliefs about what South Africa should and is contain those those like echoes continued out to apartheid so the boers are were still making like history and politics wow. far into the future and caused a lot of issues so um so on the british side Many Irish nationalists sympathized with the Boers, viewing them to be a people oppressed by British imperialism, much like themselves. So Irish miners already in the Transvaal at the start of the war formed the nucleus of two Irish commandos. In addition, small groups of Irish volunteers went to South Africa to fight with the Boers, this despite the fact that there were many Irish troops fighting in the British army, including the Royal Dublin Fusiliers. In Britain, the pro-Boer campaign expanded with writers often idealizing the Boer society. So it was it was starting to gain ground wow. in Britain. Mm-hmm. Um, the war also highlighted the dangers of Britain's policy of non-alignment and deepened her isolation. The 1900 UK general election, also known as the Khaki election, was called by the Prime Minister, Lord Salisbury, on the back of recent British victories. There was much enthusiasm for the war at this point, resulting in a victory for the Conservative government. So at first they were like, yeah, get him. However, public support quickly waned as it became apparent that the war would not be easy and it dragged on, partially contributing to the Conservatives' spectacular defeat in 1906. There was public outrage at the use of scorched earth tactics, the forced clearance of men, women, and children, the destruction of the countryside, burning of Boer homesteads, for example, and the conditions in the concentration camps. So Emily Hobhouse came back to Britain and was like, this is the bad things that are happening. People turned against the British government and they voted the Conservatives out in 1906. So it became apparent that there were serious problems with public health in Britain. Up to 40% of recruits in Britain were unfit for military service, suffering from medical problems such as rickets and other poverty-related illnesses. And this came at a time of increasing concern for the state of the poor in Britain. So this was all like culminating all at the same time. Mm -hmm. So having taken the country into a prolonged war, the conservative government was rejected by the electorate at the first general election after the war was over. So it led to their landslide defeat because of this. Um... Also, the Second Boer War, just as an FYI, was a harbinger of the new type of combat which would persevere throughout the 20th century, which was guerrilla warfare. Wow. So this idea of, like, mounted units, like you would ride into battle on your horse, this didn't make much sense in the Boer War because they had guerrilla warfare and could hide and they knew the land better. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and they lost a lot of horses, and I'll tell you about that mm. in a second. It's very bad. 
Um, so it was determined that the traditional role of cavalry was antiquated and improperly used in the battlefield in the modern warfare of the Boer War, and that the First World War was the final proof that mounted attacks had no place in 20th century combat. Like, the technology is too far advanced. Horses aren't giving us any yeah. kind of, you know. Um, so it was also, be- also the beginning of the types of conflict involving machine guns, shrapnel, and observation balloons, which were all used extensively in the First World War. By the way... And I, there was like a whole paragraph about this that I read, and I was like, mm, this is too much of a bummer. Over 300,000 horses died in the Boer War. That's so many horses. It's so many horses. There's actually like, um, I think there's a, like a monument to all the horses that died mm-hmm. in South Africa. Like they made like a statue, like these poor guys, really. And it, it was partially because they were being like shot out from underneath these men. Mm. Um, but it was also because people were starving. And I'm just going to leave it at that. So the lack of food, water, and sanitary provisions was a feature of 20th century warfare for both civilians and armed services personnel. Yet one consequence of the Boer War and the investigative commissions was the implementation of the Hague Convention in 1899 and the Geneva Convention in 1904, of which there were many further agreements thereafter. So the Boer War contributed to the Hague and the Geneva Conventions. And finally, as like a little bit of a, I guess, a bright spot, um, a little man you may heard of, his name is Winston Churchill, worked as a war correspondent for the Morning Post, and at the age of 26, he was captured and held prisoner in a camp in Pretoria from which he escaped and rejoined the British Army, later reporting on the capture of the towns of Ladysmith and Pretoria. So he was at the Boer War as a journalist, which is crazy. So that was, I'm so sorry, everyone. <laughs> a little bit of a bummer. A little bit of a bummer. But you know what? It's important. We need to know these things. Um, one other thing that I, that kind of triggered my memory while you were talking about this is I know there were a lot of like faked photographs of the Boer War. Ooh. Like um, people, you know how people in the early 20th century, they collected like stereoscopes and photographs Mm -hmm. of like souvenirs type things. And people would send them back to their families. So I know that there were a lot of um, kind of like faked photographs out there that purported to be from like, oh, this battle at the Boer War. But instead it was like clearly something that was staged later on to dramatic effect because like in the very middle of a battle, you wouldn't have been able to have a... Like a full, a full photographer, setup. like doing a stereoscope of like <laughs> mm-hmm. people carrying like somebody heroically like across a field or something like that. Yeah. Um, so I do know that like if you see a lot of um, a lot of stereoscopes, especially, and then like other photos from that time period that purport to be from the Boer War, they might not be a hundred percent. That's Accurate. interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because that that's also the right time period for when photography starts to become really popular and it starts to become um, like a, a method by which you record things like people and time and events. So I can see why, like, you would want to use photography for the first war that comes up, but you really couldn't because of the technology. So yeah. this idea of, like, recreating or faking, like scenes from the Boer War, like the biggest thing that happened right. to these people at the time kind of thing. That's really interesting. Huh. So my quiz today is on death and destruction. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, no, it's, it's called Boers and Dutchies, a quiz on the Netherlands. Question number one. The Dutch are colorful people. What with their flag being red, white, and blue. 
But this color is the official color of the monarchy in the Netherlands, thanks to this royal house based originally in the feudal state in Provence. What is this color of the Dutch? Question number two. You didn't think I'd do a quiz on the Netherlands without getting into some Dutch art, did you? The Baroque period Dutch painter is one of the most famous in the world, although his output was relatively small and was not wealthy in his lifetime. A critic once said, quote, almost all his paintings are apparently set in two smallish rooms in his house in Delft. They show the same furniture and decorations in various arrangements, and they often portray the same people, mostly women. Who is this Dutch golden age artist? Question number three. The Dutch are known for their relaxed attitudes about drug use, specifically marijuana, but possession, cultivation, and selling it to foreigners is illegal, even in coffee shops. However, this law is not enforced in either Amsterdam or Rotterdam. There are three strains of marijuana usually available to the common consumer, sativa, hybrid, and this strain, which is named after where the plant specimen was originally discovered. Name it. Question number four, true or false? Tulips, despite being the official flower and the source of an entire economy in the 17th century, are not native to the Netherlands. Question number five. This ancient candy is extremely popular in the Netherlands, and they are the largest consumers of it, chowing down on 32 million kilos of it a year. What is this polarizing candy, which is locally known as a drop? Question number six. Here's another artist question. This Dutch graphic artist's work features mathematical objects and operations, including impossible objects, explorations of infinity, reflection, symmetry, perspective, truncated and stellated polyhedra, hyperbolic geometry, and tessellations. Who is this modern artist whose art you've definitely seen on the walls of college dorm rooms? Question number seven. Think way back to Julia's episode on rivers. There are three main rivers that flow through the Netherlands before reaching the sea. Can you name at least one? Question number eight. The Netherlands are known for their huge beer exports, and this green bottle company is the third largest brewer in the world. What is this Dutch brewery? Question number nine. A final artist question. Franz Hals the Elder was a Dutch Golden Age portraitist who lived and worked in this Dutch city. It is the capital of the province of North Holland and is situated at the northern edge of the Randstad, one of the most populated metropolitan areas in Europe. However, it shouldn't be confused with this northern neighborhood of New York City, since it has an extra A. What is this Netherlandish municipality? And finally, question number 10. I'm going to name four cheeses, and you're going to tell me if they are originated in the Netherlands or somewhere else. One, Edam. Two, Limburger. Three, Gouda. And four, Emmental. We'll give you a minute to think about it, and we'll be right back with your answers. Trust your lover when you go away Keep on believing tomorrow brings a better day Sometimes you smile while you're crying inside And just once you'll turn away while the truth is shining bright
This is good. Thanks. I tried, you know. Try to keep it light. <laughs> Plus, Steve and I were just in Amsterdam last fall, which feels like 17 years ago, but... <laughs> yeah, right. It's... <laughs> <laughs> like, it like, doesn't even feel real Oh, anymore. you remember airplanes, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, barely, right? Feels like a dream. Okay, question number one. The Dutch are a colorful people, what with their flag being red, white, and blue. But this color is the official color of the monarchy in the Netherlands, thanks to this royal house based originally in the feudal state in Provence. What is this color of the Dutch? Um, All of their uniforms are this color, like for Mm. sports. It's orange. Yes, it's orange. So Willem Alexander Klaus George Ferdinand is the current reigning king of the Netherlands, having acceded to the throne following his mother's abdication in 2013. He was previously entitled the Prince of Orange, which is what you are when you're the son of a queen. Uh, on the king's birthday, April 27th, Dutch people dress in orange and celebrate their country with outdoor parties, picnics, and parades. Also, Steve told me this. The Dutch are the ones that made carrots orange. Did you know this? They were purple, right? Yeah, they were like purple or white, like mm-hmm. naturally. But because of the House of Orange, they bred carrots to make them orange for the oh, king. Oh, I didn't realize that. Isn't that cool? I tried to make that into a question, but I was like, I don't know how to make this into a question. <laughs> this is just like a fun tidbit. All right. Question number two. You didn't think I'd do a quiz on the Netherlands without getting into some Dutch art, did you? This Baroque period Dutch painter is one of the most famous in the world, although his output was relatively small and he was not wealthy in his lifetime. A critic once said almost all his paintings are apparently set in two smallish rooms in his house in Delft, and they often portray the same people, mostly women. Who is this Dutch Golden Age artist? That's my boy Vermeer. It's your boy Vermeer. It's Johannes Vermeer. Um, There is a theory that he was not a classically trained painter, but instead utilized the camera obscura to literally trace the outlines of the scenes in front of him. An inventor named Tim Jennison tried to prove this in a fascinating documentary called Tim's Vermeer. It's amazing. You should watch it, whether you're interested in art or not. It's fascinating. And it's available on Amazon Prime. Rent it tonight. It's so good. Okay. Question number three. The Dutch are known for their relaxed attitudes about drug use, specifically marijuana, but possession, cultivation, and selling it to foreigners is illegal, even in coffee shops. However, this law is obviously not enforced in either Amsterdam or Rotterdam. There are three strains of marijuana usually available to the common consumer, sativa, hybrid, and this strain, which is named after where the plant specimen was originally discovered. Name it. I think we have Andres to thank for this. Yes. From our Mm -hmm. psychedelic, what was that episode? Yeah. And how it was like, a, yeah, a, <laughs> um, indica. Yes, indica. According to the website leafly.com, which I uh, accessed in private mode, uh, indica strains are believed to be physically sedating. Sativas are said to provide invigorating, uplifting cerebral effects that pair well with physical activity, social gatherings, and creative projects. And the hybrid, as you can imagine, is thought to give a combined effect. Question number four. True or false, tulips, despite being the official flower and the source of an entire economy in the 17th century, are not native to the Netherlands. I'll say true. True. They are from Turkey. So a period known as tulip mania in the 17th century gripped the Netherlands, where the price of bulbs rose and fell. Tulips only became synonymous with the country after World War II when the Dutch used the bulbs as a food source. Really? Wow. Yeah. So today the flowers have become a large part of Dutch culture and tourists travel to the country every year to visit the Kuchenhof Tulip Gardens, which is the largest flower garden in the world. Um, My art historian boy, Simon Shama, wrote a book about this called An Embarrassment of Riches. It's very good. 
Question number five, this ancient candy is extremely popular in the Netherlands and they are the largest consumers of it, chowing down on 32 million kilos of it a year. What is this polarizing candy, which is locally known as a drop? Uh, I guess I'll just say licorice. You are correct. It is licorice. Uh, licorice is actually a type of flowering plant that is native to Southern Europe and Asia. It stands about five feet tall and has small purple and blue flowers. And some of the most popular licorice flavored candies on the market today are actually flavored with anise. Blech. I know. So gross. Uh, National Licorice Day is on April 12th. If you're looking I'm gonna to celebrate anything. I'm going to mark it on anytime. my calendar so that I can not celebrate it. <laughs> Ooh, you showed them. Oh, in your face, duchies. When did you ever win a war? All right. Question number six. Here's another artist question. This Dutch graphic artist's work features mathematical objects and operations, including, I'm going to name like three, impossible objects, hyperbolic geometry, tessellations, and reflection. Who is this modern artist whose art you've definitely seen on the walls of college dorm rooms? Is this M.C. Escher? It is M.C. Escher. And I uh, love that um, we just are like, ugh, you'll see this on a dorm room wall. Like, that's our, like, <laughs> that's our, like, art snobby, like, criticism. Yes. Like, uh, you've seen that Picasso painting on a trillion art <laughs> on dorm room walls. Well, we say that because it was, like, there's only, like, five art posters <laughs> <laughs> that, that everyone... Regardless of age, has hung on their walls, and I should say I have a print of one of his early works entitled Three Worlds," and it was on my dorm room wall. Okay. So I'm I'm also poking fun at myself. Um, Escher believed he had no mathematical ability, uh, although he interacted with mathematicians George uh, Polya, Roger Penrose, Halleck, Harold Coxeter, and crystallographer Frederick Hogg, and conducted his own research into tessellation. Uh, early in his career, he drew inspiration from nature, making studies of insects, landscapes, and plants, such as lichen, all of which he used as details in his artwork. And uh, Three Worlds is of a, a goldfish in a lake with the reflection of trees onto the lake and then, like, leaves on the surface. It's very beautiful. Hmm. I like his earlier stuff because I'm, you know, personally just kind of drawn toward more, like, organic stuff, but... Um, great artist. We did an exhibit of his work a couple summers ago at the Memorial Art Gallery, and people just, like, went nuts. Uh, question number seven. Think way back to Julia's episode on rivers. There are three main rivers that flow through the Netherlands before reaching the sea. Can you name at least one? Um, I'll say the Amstel. Uh, no. So the three are the Rhine, the Meuse, and the Scheldt. Uh, for more on rivers, check out our episode 40, Crimea River, from Julia. It's very good. I've never Question. heard of those last two rivers. Uh, neither, neither did I. <laughs> <laughs> neither did I, so don't feel bad. Uh, question number eight. The Netherlands are known for their huge beer exports, and this green bottle company is the third largest brewer in the world. What is this Dutch brewery? Uh, Heineken. Yes, Heineken, they were established in 1873, and since 1975, most Heineken brand beer has been brewed at their brewery in Zotterwoda in the Netherlands. In 2011, 2.74 billion, with a B, liters of Heineken brand beer were produced worldwide, while the total beer production of all breweries fully owned by the Heineken Group of overall brands was 16.46 billion liters globally. So they a have lot a, of lot of, a lot of liquid, a lot of beer. Question number nine, final artist question. 
Frans Hals the Elder was a Dutch Golden Age portraitist who lived and worked in this Dutch city. It is the capital of the province of North Holland and is situated at the northern edge of the Randstad, one of the most populated metropolitan areas in Europe. However, it shouldn't be confused with this northern neighborhood of New York City, since it has an extra A. What is this Netherlandish municipality? Is this Harlem? It is Harlem. Harlem, the Dutch city, has a population of 161,265 from last year and was granted city status way back in 1245. Nice. Uh, the neighborhood of Harlem is named after, as you can imagine, the Dutch city of Harlem because New York is all about the Dutch. New York City just has a bunch of Dutch names. Uh, and finally, question number 10, my favorite question. <laughs> I'm going to name four cheeses and you're going to tell me if they originated in the Netherlands or somewhere else. By the way, the Dutch have the lowest um, rates of uh, lactose intolerance in the world because they eat so much cheese from, like, day <laughs> one. All right, number one, eat them. Uh, am I saying yes or no or true or false or what, uh, what answer am say, I giving you? You're telling me yes, it's Dutch or no, it's not Dutch. Okay, uh, yes, it's Dutch. Yes, it is Dutch. Number two, Limburger. I'm going to say no. Yes, it's Dutch. Ooh. It's uh, the cheese I've never had. Yeah, because it's supposed to be so stinky. But, like, I never see it anywhere. No, I mean, it's also apparently, a, like, a, I think it's like a soft cheese. So I think there's there's probably some sort of, like, regulations mm. in the U.S. that we can't have, like, real Limburger cheese. Okay. That tracks. Uh, yeah. Number three, Gouda. Uh, yes. Yes, you are correct. And finally, for... Emmental. Ah, that's Swiss. Yes, it is Swiss. You are correct. Good job. Nice. Good job. Good job. I like cheese questions. Oh, yeah. I mean, I love a cheese question. We should just do a cheese episode. We should just do an episode where we just Ooh, interactive. Sit. We tell everybody, <laughs> we give everybody a list of cheeses to buy at the store at like mm -hmm. a week ahead of time. Yeah. And then it's like, eat along with us. <laughs> <laughs> that could we'll be, be like okay, that would be really fun maybe we could do let that let us know if our, you would do that if you would yeah, eat we'll along do, to a podcast episode with us yeah well eat along with us and then we talk about mm, this is definitely <laughs> this flavor and like I really like it and then maybe we can do like some, some trivia I can tell about you that. like the history of it or whatever yeah I love that Sorry, eat along with us derailed this episode no it's no, you know what the Boer War was so depressing I would love to have a cheese eating episode <laughs> So eat along with misinformation. All right, great. Good job. <laughs> great job, Lauren. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks. Um, thanks to everybody. Thank you for listening. Uh, please rate, review, subscribe. Please let us know if you would like a cheese episode. Like now I'm, I'm like 10 minutes ago, I had no idea that this was going to be a thing, but now I am 100% behind it. So we'll do like cheese, cheese tasting, cheese pairings. Um, yeah. Thanks so much for listening, you guys. Uh, please tell a friend about our, about our podcast. We hope that you are having a wonderful summer and that, uh, you're enjoying the beautiful weather that we're having. Yeah. We'll uh, catch you next time. Bye. Bye.